welcome to Talking Property, where you get the inside information into what's going on in the Australian and Asian property markets from leading property and investment experts. Welcome to Australian Property Journal's Talking Property Podcast. I'm Nelson Yap, editor of APJ. My guest today is Tony Crabb. Tony is the National Research Director of Cushman and Wakefield. Hi, Tony. Welcome to Australian Property Journal's Talking Property Podcast. Good morning, Nelson. How are you? Oh, getting there. <laughs> this is lockdown, so I suppose we're uh, podcast is the new way to uh, talk to people. Indeed. Now, Tony, tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into property. Jeez, it's a, it's a bit of a long story. Look, I was working in the equities markets for 10 years um, through the 80s and, and 90s, and I, just, I wanted a, a change of pace. There was a bit of burnout there, and commercial property is, is related in the sense that it's an asset class, and many of the, the clients I was dealing with in equities were also involved in commercial property, and there was, believe it or not, less competition in that market and a, a better, you know, opportunity for me to, to spread my wings, so to speak. So I've been there for uh, for about 25 years now. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's been fantastic. I've loved every minute of it. So, Tony, what's your role at Cushman and Wakefield? Yeah, so I joined there four years ago as National Director of Research. So, again, very much working in an applied sense, using the research to provide very strong advice to clients of the firm about the direction that they ought to be taking. Some early insights into some trends uh, to get in early, buy, sell, hold recommendations and and strategic uh, decision making. And I guess that's where we're going today, uh, talking about trends and particularly in the office market. Um, The hot topic right now for the market, and I guess not just in Australia, but overseas, is will office ever go back to pre-COVID conditions? Yeah, look, it's fascinating. And it is the, the really big question, isn't it? What is the future going to look like for office? And it's it's very easy for us to sit here in lockdown and say, that's it, and I'm never going back. But you know, that's, that, that's not true. What we do know from the pandemic is that it's, it has accelerated a lot of trends that were already becoming apparent and flexible working had been on the radar for quite some time and it really showed up amongst millennials now these are the 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 people that grew up with mobile phones you had them at school had them at uni and were used to being very agile and so they said well you know i don't really need to be in the office all the time to do my tasks and in fact you know i can be on the move and working so they were very much uh, pushing for agile work. Now, the baby boomers who are busy running the businesses are very much commanded control, having not grown up with mobile phones and you know, want to see people in the office and, you know, a little untrusting. Now, the virus comes along and, of course, everybody, baby boomers included, are forced into home and are forced to now adopt work practices that are, for some people, quite unfamiliar. So hopping on things like Teams and Zoom and so on in order to conduct a daily business. And everybody adapted pretty quickly and a great deal of trust was established and productivity held together and everybody's got the hang of it. Now, when we go back to the office, and we will go back to the office, there's going to be this new hybrid. So this acceleration of agile working 
Now, it's not a one-size-fits-all type of thing. There are certainly some roles that can happen outside of the office permanently. And some people are quite happy doing that. Some people want to come in one or two days a week, do a few meetings, feel part of the group. But for the most part, they're just far better off working at home. Some roles need to be in the office 100% of the time and want to be. Yeah, And then there's people who just say, you know what? It's bucketing rain outside. I've got a pile of work to do and I'm just going to do it here at home. And they'll be more efficient doing it. You know, that's and having the permission to be able to work like that, I think, is really liberating for a lot of people. In fact, Gallup in the US did a study that sort of showed that being in the office none of the time and being in the office full time is equally bad for engagement with a business. And in fact, maximum engagement with a business comes when you're three to four days a week in the office. So I think the hybrid work. Is, is certainly very much here to stay. And this is the thing. We, we're seeing all these different mixtures of workplaces, some companies adopting uh, different practices and trying to figure out what's working and what's not. And the struggle for Australia has been, uh, we've seen this particularly in Melbourne, um, is that uh, the CBD hasn't returned to the way it was and the retailers are struggling uh, because we can't get the people back into the CBDs. Now, I, I recently, or as uh, last week, Google in uh, in America announced, or Reuters did a, a research that showed that Google was cutting the salaries of employees who choose to work from home more often, even if they came from the same workplace. So let's say you and I work in the same office, but I decided to work from home more often than you did. My salary was lower 15% than you, even though we were doing the same work. Is that something that is an effective strategy for employers to adopt to get people back into the workplace? Yeah, I, I, it, it's interesting. You know, I, I did read that piece and, you know, I've been a, kind of aware of this stuff coming uh, for quite some time. So, look, there's a whole lot of, the whole range of issues here are sort of all, all tied up in this. Now, let's go back to the CBD just for a start. There's, there's a whole bunch of different users of the CBD, not just office workers. Uh, yeah, there's the students, there's the tourists. The tourists are domestic tourists. They're tourists from within the city and, and there's tourists from overseas. And, and those guys will, will all come back in, in varying numbers over the next couple of years. Office workers, uh, again, they'll all start coming back slowly but surely. And you know, for, the, for the reasons that I mentioned earlier, just that desire. And so th- there's... Uh, Tied up in all of that, of course, is confidence and you know, that, that sort of permission, if you like. And that really comes with vaccination. And you would have thought that, that people's uh, idea of safety, uh, being able to travel, opening up travel bubbles, having a, a vaccination passport and so on, all of these things are part of this future that's coming next year. And you would expect that that will accelerate. And then as the decade unfolds, we'll we'll learn to live with this with this virus, much the same as we live with with all the other viruses that, that that are around. So, yeah, those things will return to normal. This thing about uh, remote working is uh, is is something quite a bit different. I did a thought leadership piece a number of years ago called "The Future of Cities," and it was really it was really getting down to to the idea of if you can work anywhere, anytime. Why would you live in a place that was expensive? 
why wouldn't you go and live somewhere that was was nice and you know sort of affordable if you like and you would use that to kind of arbitrage the wages and in a sense some of the global workplaces have said well you know we're gonna outsource uh, some of the work to places where it's cheaper and it's not it's not sort of it's cheaper because the inputs are cheaper because the housing costs are cheaper so for example you can outsource a whole bunch of stuff to the philippines and india where where, where the housing is is a lot cheaper than it is in new york london paris and sydney and and more and more, we're going to see that sort of arbitrage of what I call, um, you know, the, the sort of work that is just process-driven. And so process-driven work, and, and this goes, you know, we saw this happen in manufacturing, and I don't see why it shouldn't also happen in the workplace where you're doing fairly repetitive, fairly simple kind of work. But for the work that's really... Um, what should we say, um, creative and innovative, that's a whole different ballgame. And, you know, they don't, they, those people are going to get paid salaries. They get paid sort of bonuses, if you like, for being awesome. So it's a, I always sort of like to take it back to a band, right? You're in a band, you can't do it remotely. <laughs> you know, nobody makes a record, you know, hanging on Zoom or Teams. You know, they go and, you know, sit in the sun somewhere cheap and play their instruments and make music and, and be creative. And, you know, oftentimes the cheaper the better. And, but not always so. You know, we've had uh, great music come out of really expensive places to live. But the point is that the environment for creativity has to be right. And it doesn't just, you can't force it to happen. It just happens. And, and when it does, and so those guys create an album and then it does really well and they get paid. <laughs> and that's kind of, you know, they're not getting a salary for, for, for making the record as such. They get paid when it's a hit, when it's really good. And so yeah, the nature of creative work is sort of more heading in that direction now. And the wages are more associated with what I call the, you know, the grunt work of the, the daily grind of, of office work. And that stuff now can be palmed out, you know, almost anywhere in the world. And certainly, you know, if people are working from home, then they're able to arbitrage their housing costs with that. And eventually, I think uh, workplaces will, will work that out. And as you say, you know, there will be some adjustment for wages, but... Yeah, it's uh, you know, that's something that I'd identified quite some time ago. And again, I think the uh, the the pandemic has accelerated some of those ideas, those concepts. We do have a reliance on people coming and going from the workforce. You know, some people will come and, and work in Australia in, in white collar jobs. They'll come here for three or four years and then and then move on. And yeah up to 20% of white-collar workers can, can be like that, you know, really quite agile and quite mobile. And when you shut the door and say, right, that's it, nobody gets in, uh, it, it does leave you a bit short-staffed. Short and, uh, yeah, we've seen that, you know, right across the economy. Definitely have. Um, I, I saw one report that a restaurant, for example, just on the retail side, that a restaurant was offering chefs $20,000 <laughs> uh, hiring bonus um, if they came in and work. And I think the hospitality industry is one of those that relied a lot on um, external or, or travellers who came in to work in Australia. Um, so just now, I suppose, 
we were talking about uh, workplaces and and the uh, how do we say this flexibility and not everyone would want to go into the CBD. So we're now seeing the emergence of um, suburban offices, which for a while there there was that was it that what, how do we put this the flocking back to the CBD. Now we're looking at decentralizing everything again and going into the suburbs. Um, but that's also now seeing co-working companies focusing on them as well on the suburban locations. So what's the future of suburban offices and the future of co-working you see? Yeah, so there's a couple of things sort of tied up in all of that, isn't there? This this idea that we can have uh, hub and spoke, if you like. Um, and, and this sort of goes back to, to that whole idea of, of work from home. Um, people's homes are generally not set up for, for working, for office work. Uh, you know, the bed, the dining room table, look, you can get by for a day or two, but that's not a permanent thing. And as we go into these, you know, what, what appears to be months of lockdowns uh, is certainly not, not not appropriate at all. Now, I have a bona fide home office, so I'm sort of sitting here at a desk with a computer and, and my, my chairs and, it, you know, it's all it's all ridgy ditch, you know, and it's ergonomic, you know, it's it, and, it, and it works. Um, I have seen other people sitting there with a laptop on their lap on their bed. Now, you know, it's not going to be long before their back gives out and, you know, their neck and, you know, and all the rest of it. And so there's, there's that aspect of that it's not fit for purpose. Now, you know, yeah, you can spend the money, you can get all of that sorted, you can make it fit for purpose. But there is also a whole bunch of people there that uh, resent the intrusion of the workplace into their household. They say, look, you know, I need a division between work and home. I can't have this hybrid thing where, you know, my whole life is bound up and it's 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 work, play, work, play, work, play, and there's no division. Um, and they resent the intrusion. And so it clearly the one of the solutions is to have a workplace close to home. And some people don't want to get on public transport. So they say, right, that's it. I'd like to walk or ride a bike or drive my car to somewhere close, you know, five or ten minutes away, and then sit there and work in an office environment, uh, maybe with some colleagues who live nearby, um, you know, and then have this hub that works there. And then I, you know, switch on, it's work, switch off, I go home, and then they have that separation. So it, it takes a while for those things to work themselves out in organisations, Organisations have to get that stuff set up. They have to have security protocols in place. They they have to you know, make arrangements for that to be there. Now, whether that's dedicated space or shared space, uh, it takes a while. But you could so you could see that the opportunity for that has always been there. And again, the pandemic has accelerated some people's thinking around this. Mm. Now, co co working is the next part of that. Is to say, all right, well. You know, here I am, XYZ Corporation. I really don't want to take on a lease, uh, you know, for 10 years at this this place. You know, four or five different locations out in the suburbs. Uh, but I will enter into an agreement with a co-working place where I can get five or six seats. Now, that could be in a dedicated room that is uh, XYZ Corporation's room. Um, you know, so we've got some security about it. And, and then people use a booking system to get in. And then we've got the flexibility. We can increase that to 10 or 15 chairs or we can drop it down to one or, or none, as the case may be. And so you could see why 
you know, in many respects, um, businesses would find that very attractive. So, uh, you know, I think there's, there, there really is something to that. And that's the thing, isn't it? We're also seeing the evolution of co-working uh, demand and the use of co-working. Previously, it was envisioned that it was, you know, individuals who would come in and, and take up co-working memberships. But now we're seeing a lot of corporates uh, taking out uh, memberships or, or, or accounts with co-working companies, like you said, where they would um, take initial, so they've spread it out across six locations. So in theory, it's not work from home or work where it's more the work from anywhere <laughs> because you can work from anywhere. You can choose any of the locations that's closest to you or or a number of them if, if it's uh, surrounding you. Uh, you know, you have three or four office locations within your vicinity or your suburb. Yeah, that's right. And, and the, the, the issue here is you're, you're right. We looked at co-working and said, oh, that's just, you know, young startups or you know, hipsters or, you know, whatever you want to call them. And, you know, just a couple of consultants here and there, you know, it's it's just a fad, a passing thing. And what it's actually turned out to be is is a whole lot more than that. There is the the flexibility that is afforded to corporations to say, right, we, we need some project space. And, you know, there's no room in the building that we're in, so we'll just go and grab... Uh, five chairs over there at this at this co-working place. Or the co-working place happens to be downstairs and you just say, right, we're just going to send this project team down there to, to do that work. And so it allows them to, to, to flex in and out in, in a short-term manner, a very cost-effective, very efficient way of doing things. The other thing too is there is this opportunity for businesses in 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 what I call old space in BC and D grade buildings to upgrade into better quality buildings and become part of a, a bigger community for much the same as it costs them to stay in BC and D grade buildings. So, for example, let's say you've got a co-working space in a premium or A grade building and the, the average size of a tenant down in those secondary grades is about 400 square metres. Now, at the moment, they can't get into the, the big buildings because you've really got to be 1,200 square metres to, to get into them. To, you've got to take a whole floor. Occasionally, these owners will carve the floors up, but they're really reluctant to do so. So these guys have always been precluded on the basis of their size. Now you can get in through a co-working arrangement, and it'll cost you about the same as it does to stay in your BC or D-grade building, but you'll get all... A, the prestige of the Premier Raygate building, you'll get all the amenity, so the end of facilities and, and all the rest of it, and then you'll get this terrific community. And still, all of the amenity that you would get, the, the fit-out, the electronics, all the shared services, the communication stuff, um, you know, access to the boardroom, all on a user-pays basis, that kind of works out over the year to be about much the same as you would have paid. And you're getting something a lot better. So, to me, I just see yeah, a whole lot of businesses that were in BC and D grade buildings saying, "Look, um, we're not we're not going to renew our lease. We're going to exist in co working for a while, and we're going to see how that goes." And the ones that I've met so far have said, "Yeah, they're not going back. You know, they they just love it. It's such a breath of fresh air. They've got access to all of this amenity. They've got prestige. They've got new buildings, and they just say, 
this is such a far better way to work. And they feel part of a much bigger community. They're being introduced to other businesses. And yeah, they're, they're, they're finding it to be, to be really good. It, not for everyone, but you know, again, it's a trend, I think, that's accelerating because of the pandemic. And that's the thing with the, we're talking, obviously, the pandemic features a lot in what we're talking about. And it has caused uncertainty, uh, uncertainty in the marketplace. Um, but that hasn't translated to uh, investors' confidence where, you know, where we're seeing people also investors not target office markets um, because there's still a lot of demand there. I know Cushman and Wakefield on your side, you have research that shows what we're seeing on the office market and where the trends are going uh, in the capital in the capital markets. Yeah, that's right. The, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, industrial is the big flavour of the month. Everybody's playing catch up there because they're underweight and they're overweight retail. And of course, retail's heading in the other direction. The office markets, though, make up a core part of of most investors' portfolios. And yeah, the money being made available to invest is is increasing. You know, the amount of money going into superannuation, the dividends that are being churned out by superannuation that need to be reinvested as well uh, are there. Now, you know, capital expenditure and maintenance and all those sorts of things, yep, that's all part of the, the reinvesting. But, you know, the economies are growing and the number of people working in office and in office-style careers are increasing. And so we need more office space. And so one of the ways to fund that, of course, is to take our superannuation money and, and go and build new buildings for all of these businesses and, and, and get them set. The forecast that we're seeing at the moment is for another 300,000 office workers in, in Melbourne in the next decade. And that, that will require another 3 million square metres of office space. And you know, that will be built by you know, these, these um, big you know, superannuation funds. And you know, that's where the investment capital is going. Now, sometimes developers will, will build them and then sell them to these guys, and, or there'll be some sort of fund-through arrangement. But, yeah, the, the demand is, is strong, and the demand is there on both sides. The demand is on the occupier side and, and on the investor side as well. Now, the interesting thing in this pandemic, of course, is we've seen a bit of a, a, bit of a hit on the demand side, not so much on, on the finance side of things. You know, everybody's still paying their rent and stuff, even if they're not physically occupying it. And we still have some decisions to make into the future about the level of occupancy we're going to have. So there are still some question marks about the future. But having said that, the demand to, to buy office buildings still recognises the fact that there's a very bright outlook for these kind of jobs. And in fact, it's probably going to accelerate as we head out and start rolling out 5G. The, the number of jobs that that's going to create for office-based workers is, is going to outstrip the supply of space. So you know, the, the cycle is still there and the investment cycle is still there and the rent cycle is still there you know, with the vacancies and so on. So the cycles are still there, but the investment capital is still pretty consistently there. You know, and I, my advice to people is to, is to say you should buy through the cycle. You, you can't put your $5 billion into the office market at the bottom of the market because there isn't enough for sale. So you've just got to keep chipping away and buying stuff, you know, in, in a disciplined manner 
as and when they become available and just take that through the cycle approach. And at the moment, I think we'll look back in seven or eight years' time and say now is very good buying. And that's where we're also seeing foreign investment uh, dollars flow through as well. I think we've seen transactions in Collingwood where American or US-based fund managers acquiring properties, uh, office buildings or office developments in Collingwood. And so on with the research that you've got, what are the foreign investors looking for when they uh, c- come into Melbourne? Yeah, look, foreign investors aren't, aren't, so, aren't, aren't so head up on must be in the CBD. You know, and, and, and they're far more familiar with, with what we would call non-CBD locations. And it's, it, it's also, there's an issue there about lot size as well. It's about saying, you know, if you buy in a certain price range, you've got an element of liquidity. If you go and buy in the CBD, you might be putting five, six, seven hundred million dollars in. And, and you might say, look, that's more than the allocation we want to make. We want to make an allocation here of 100 million. And so you're more likely to find that in the, the, the fringe areas. So there's a lot allocation to it. There's another thing, too, about, uh, you know, is it a new building? You know, and this new building gets great depreciation. You know, you know you're not going to have the sort of capex requirements that, that are going to annoy you, um, particularly as a foreign investor. You, you get bogged down. You have to have people on site fixing these things. And and if it's a newish building, you've got long long new leases as well. So the long whale is is often attractive as well. So you might get a, a an eight, twelve, or fifteen year whale uh, weighted average lease expiry on these and. Uh, you know, you might say, right, this is in a, a fund. It's got seven years. Uh, we'll sell it at the end of that with, with still some lease remaining on it and, and redeploy our capital. So there's all sorts of different strategies amongst the foreign investors um, that aren't necessarily the same as the investors we have here, which are maybe longer dated superannuation funds. So, and again, some of these uh, are so large, some of these foreign investors, they've got money in every market in the world and so they're just saying well geez we haven't got anything in melbourne we should have something in melbourne yeah we've got something in sydney we'll get something in brisbane you know and then eventually they might even head over to perth and buy something there and so but you'll find that they've got they're they're invested in 50 countries around the world so yeah this is just part of of a global strategy to diversify their risks and you talk about super funds uh buying into offices and buying into buildings what are the current allocations for overall for Australia, uh, for Australia super funds. And if they were to increase that allocation slightly, what would we see in the amount of money or capital that will flow into the market? Yeah, look, it's interesting. There's, um, yeah, there's a lot of changes going on in the super funds at the moment as they amalgamate and, and uh, consolidate and, and weed out the smaller you know, underperforming funds, the ones that don't have scale and so on. So there's a little bit of that going on. It used to be uh, a roughly a 10% allocation to property. Now, they would put 5% in direct property and then have 5% in listed property trusts. But these days, the, the 10% is, is pretty much you know, across the board direct property. Now, some of them will invest directly themselves and some of them will farm it out to other managers. And some of them will go into joint venture arrangements and some of them will have a hybrid that says we'll have some direct property ourselves and then we'll, we'll have a range of managers out there. And some of those managers are domestic and some of them are overseas just to, to get these 
the diversification. But the money pouring into superannuation every year, you know, we've got sort of three three trillion dollars in superannuation, eight hundred million of which is in self managed super. So let's cast that to one side, two point two trillion dollars. Now, you know, it's um it's it's giving off, say, let's say a five percent income yield. So you've got a hundred billion dollars a year of which 10% goes to the property. So you get $10 billion a year just from our superannuation funds that needs to be reinvested on top of the cash flow going in, which is still net positive. There's still more, more money being put into superannuation than is being taken out. So turnover in Australian commercial property is at best about $30 billion a year of which our superannuation funds demand at least a third of it, if not probably half of it. That doesn't leave a lot of room for owner-occupiers, private investors, foreign investors, developers, and, and everybody else who wants to get in there and, and purchase property. So it's a, it's a very crowded space, and it's likely to remain like that um, you know, for a very, very long time. I suppose on that note, I would like to ask you what your forecast will be the market the office market in the next or oh, in the near future <laughs> granted that we uh, get our vaccinations up to 70 80 percent a couple of different things here one is certainly we see this as about the bottom of the cycle for the rent for the rental market in other words incentives where they are set at the moment are that's roughly about as good as it gets so for landlords this is this is a tough time and but this is likely to be as tough as it gets now the recovery, when it comes, will be pretty pretty swift, and it's likely that those incentives will evaporate sometime over the next eighteen months. Now eighteen months sounds like a long time, but you know when you're looking back and saying, "Oh darn, gee, that was last year's prices; they're gone now." Um, you know, a lot of businesses will be kicking themselves. So, from an income side of things, I think this is as bad as it gets. Uh, I think. As we accelerate out of this um, out of this pandemic, I think people will be really surprised about how quickly it bounces back and things going to return to normal. I think businesses that the, there will be a continuing flight to quality, and I think what we'll see as we as we accelerate out of this is that the really good quality space gets taken up very quickly, and you know, I think some of the secondary space might well struggle a bit. Because a lot of businesses will say, "Listen, this is not the kind of place we we want to be in anymore. It's not it's not well um, for our staff." And so, yeah, I think that flight to quality thing is something that we'll, we'll definitely see. Thank you very much for that, Tony. It was a great. It was chat. terrific, Nelson. Thank you. And hopefully, we'll have you back soon. I really look forward to it. And thanks for having me. Talking property is brought to you by Australia's number one property news website, Australian Property Journal.